Story One of Elsie and the Child, A Tale of Riceman's Steps and Other Stories by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story One, Elsie and the Child, Part Two. Elsie maintained silence and lay back. She was living to the full her private life in these moments. She had utterly ceased to be a house parlor-maid or anything else but a passionately loved and loving wife. She had great confidence in herself, remembering how again and again, by the exercise of her native force and shrewdness, she had successfully come through terrible, bloody, and even mortal ordeals. But her self-reliance was shaken by shell-shocked joe's present demeanour she feared she asked herself whether indeed the final ordeal had not now veritably arrived joe his mind fired by a single unfortunate phrase of hers was out of control come to bed joe dear she whispered benevolently without a sign of reproach surprise or dismay lowering bitterly not at elsie but rather at the whole world joe went in the direction of the fireplace and stuck his hands deep into his trouser pockets they go off sunday nights to dancing he meditated thus in a low rumble of his heavy voice elsie said nothing but stretched out her arm towards him the clock ticked louder and louder well i won't have it he suddenly shouted but what joe i won't have it i'm the husband i suppose i suppose i'm the husband all right and i won't have it he lifted his face as if to challenge any one to deny that he was the husband his features grew still gloomier he was wilfully steeping himself in gloom secreting poison for himself but what joe this here wobbling about this is hanky panky if they think they want us to go we'll go just as we're comfortable we'll go i tell yer and quicker than that i've had enough of it but joe they haven't said a word about us going they haven't said a word about anything of course they haven't it was only the child talking oh i know i know what it is yer can't tell me here you slave for em night and day and i slave for em night and day and it's upstairs and downstairs and upstairs and downstairs and they'll tell you to go will they and why all because the damned little wench won't let yer out of her sight no she can't i can see yer see i can't see things but let me tell yer i can see things though i don't say as much as some sunday night too dancin elsie smiled timidly as it were shamefaced but whether from shame for him or for herself who could decide moving to the edge of the bed she turned on to her bosom thus hiding her face so as to be able to stretch out her arm as far as possible and without looking she groped with her hand for the hand of the deranged and dangerous man her hand found his but at the first touch he gave her hand a hard hurting blow tremendous reflex action then he banged his right fist at the clock which clattered noisily across the floor elsie's heart seemed to stand still the blow was the measure of his barbaric sweet love for her of his pride in her of his jealousy for her 
She glanced surreptitiously round to see if there were any knives in the room, and was relieved to discover none. She had once, in the course of their love, confronted a carving knife in Joe's raised hand. Poor boy, he simply did not know what he was doing. This was all the fault of the Kaiser, this was. In the succeeding silence, the clock immediately reasserted its spiritual sovereignty by continuing to tick. Joe might stick out his head relative to his body and his chin relatively to his head, but the triumphant clock dominated the room. Then a fearful thing happened. The door slowly opened and Jack crept cautiously in. The idiot of a dog, unaware that in this crisis he was no better than a lighted fuse approaching dynamite, perhaps wanted to assure himself that peace was established. Elsie stared at him in horror. She dared make no sound. Joe was clutching the mantelpiece with his right hand, and his face worked in a terrifying manner. The dog jumped noiselessly onto the bed, crouched, laid his chin flat on the counterpane, and looked about anxiously, ingratiatingly, without moving his head. Elsie again stretched forth her hand, and, as anxious and ingratiating as the dog, touched Joe's left hand once more. Joe did not move, but he sobbed. She clasped the hand and very gently drew the reluctant body towards her. She put Joe's hand delicately on the dog's head. He did not shrink at the contact with the hair. She moved Joe's hand so that it stroked the dog several times. The dog looked up and licked Joe's hand. Joe saw he was crying. Elsie was living her life. Her characteristic inventive fancy had averted a calamity. The clock went on proudly ticking, but in vain. It was not heard. 6. The next morning was lovely. The house fronted almost due east. The sun, which had been at work for hours on the rejuvenation of Clerkenwell, was pouring its bright medicine through all the front windows except the heavily curtained windows of the best bedroom where Mrs. Rasty slept. The time was about 7.30. Elsie, who had not yet assumed the white cap, was sweeping the stairs which rose in one long straight flight from the hall. Joe, in green apron, was cleaning some of his windows. Every window in the house was exclusively his but would shortly leave them to stone his front steps. The atmosphere of the interior was cheerfully expectant, as though God was good and life exciting and worthy to be lived, and health triumphant over sickness. Then Elsie heard a latch-key turn in the front door, and the opening door grated a little, as usual, on the top step. The doctor had had a night call. He came briskly in, but the sun was before him, throwing sheets of dazzling light on the still, unswept hall floor. The doctor was carrying his obstetric bag of tricks. "'All right, Elsie, all right,' he greeted the corruptress of his adored child. "'I can get past.' However, Elsie had respectfully mounted to the landing with her brush to give him passage on the stairs. "'Fine morning, Elsie,' said he pleasantly, determined to set an example to mankind. "'Sorry you had a call, sir,' Elsie replied gravely. The little doctor had somehow, save for his chin, kept his spruceness throughout the night, 
but he was extremely pale, and his dark-ringed eyes unnaturally gleamed. Elsie, in her time, had roused the doctor from his bed to come to her old employers, the Earlfords, and at this moment she had a guilty feeling as for an outrage upon humanity committed long ago. She was much concerned for the doctor, because he worked far too hard, and was obviously killing himself. She knew all the details of his daily existence, and had pieced them together. Whatever might have happened in the night, he always breakfasted sharp at 8.30, reading his letters and glancing at the daily telegraph as he ate. He began breakfast alone, but at about 8.45, Mrs. Rasty would appear, full of solicitude, and would nimble with him to solace him and take his instructions for answering the letters, which were written by all sorts of people, from police to maiden ladies, and all of which had to do with his profession. Generally, Miss Ava would add her presence, and sometimes be permitted to enter an appointment in his diary. At nine, the surgery work began. It ended at ten-thirty, or soon afterwards, and instantly the doctor would be off on his rounds, or he might have to go to a police court or a post-mortem, which meant that he would be late for dinner, half-past one or even a quarter to two instead of one. In twenty minutes after that, he would be off once more. Theoretically, but in practice rarely, he had tea at five-thirty. The second assize of panel patients started at six and finished between eight and eight-thirty. Once, in a tremendous effort to live a civilized life, he had put the second assize forward to the afternoon. But the scheme was killed after a few months, partly by public opinion and partly by the demands of private patients. The doctor supped at nine and might see calling patients at any time from eight-thirty to ten-thirty. He read before going to bed. He seldom saw the adored Eva. No portion of his day was securely his own, not a minute. He always had more than he could do, and his large clientele was steadily increasing. Elsie strongly agreed with the mistress that he ought to take a partner or an assistant. But no, he would not. He preferred to sell his life bit by bit for the five-pound notes to be used to the advantage of Miss Eva. Elsie knew that, as well as the mistress knew it, and in secret she blamed the doctor for his obstinacy. Still, she deeply respected his industry. Five and a half hours out, said the doctor, as he climbed the stairs. What a shame, sir! Fortunes of war, fortune of war, he exclaimed cheerily, and rather loudly, with one of his constrained professional laughs. Child dead, but I think we've saved the mother, he added, in spite of herself. No will to live, Elsie, no will to live. Husband drunk, mother-in-law drunk. Elsie made a protesting sound. Shall Joe get you anything, sir? No, thanks, I mustn't spoil my breakfast. By the time I've had my bath and shaved, post will have come. He was always slow, thorough, and methodical over his toilette. Even danger of death could not hurry him there. He stopped, facing her, on the landing. Against Elsie's massiveness, he was like a sturdy little tree against a monument. Here I am carrying this upstairs, he said, holding out the bag to her. Just take it down again, will you, and put it in its place? He spoke now, as he sometimes did to servants, confidentially, almost appealingly, 
and his tone seemed to imply look here we understand each other you and i do i can trust your fundamental decency and you can trust mine eh? such a tone was his nearest approach to unbending from an eternal professionalism and it endeared him to both elsie and joe inspiring them with an eager desire to be of service to him to shield him from worry and unnecessary effort elsie dropped her brush and took the bag hastening down the stairs what a shame she thought again including the drunkards this time in her comment needless for the doctor to describe the night scene to her she had witnessed some such scenes and heard tell of many a few hours earlier he had gone dancing solely to please those ladies well perhaps to please himself a bit too goodness knew he wanted a change when really he ought to have been fast asleep her brow puckered with conscientiousness as though the doctor's case was her own personal responsibility i say elsie the doctor leaning over the banisters at the top of the stairs called to her sotto voce he raised his eyebrows to beckon her upwards as for an intimate communication she flew towards him still holding the bag and stopped just under him her head level with the rail and his fountain pen pocket what's all this that joe's been telling me then he pursed his lips and put on a grim expression joe sir when sir last night this morning rather when i was called he got up you know did he sir there were two glorious unassailable sleepers in that home elsie and her mistress the house had one of the old-fashioned doctor's speaking tubes the lower end at the front door and the upper by dr rasty's bed mrs rasty never heard the ruthless quiet whistle of the tube she never heard her husband's gentle sharp speech into it nor his rising from her side nor his dressing nor his departure nor his undressing nor his return to her side here was the great gift indeed it amounted to genius it helped immensely to maintain the good temper of the house for if she too had been exacerbated by disturbed nights explosions would have occurred by breakfast time as for elsie she had always been an accomplished sleeper and since her marriage to joe had slept better than ever once she was asleep the alarm clock had no dominion over her the clock awakened joe of a morning and joe wakened elsie with a series of physical violences the doctor continued he said you were thinking of leaving us said you weren't feeling very comfortable who me sir i suppose both of you oh sir elsie was thunderstruck she had been quite sure that on the previous night she had soothed joe into his normal quiescence and acquiescence she could have taken oath on the fact and here joe in the dead of night and without a word to her had been venting his sick fancies on the doctor she was overset she thought she knew joe to his core and she did not know him she had misread his symptoms which meant that her confidence in her power to handle him was shaken what could she say to the doctor nothing she might not be disloyal to her husband of whose prestige she was very jealous by superiorly smiling away his strange statements to the doctor and certainly she might not confirm his attitude to the doctor 
she felt herself to have been thrust into a terrible crisis. "'Oh, sir!' she murmured again. "'Of course, if you must go, you must,' said the doctor, pleasantly, but coldly, indifferently, as one saying, "'There's no understanding any of you people. I like you, up to a point, but I'm perfectly independent, and I've no intention of being disturbed by any of you.' He suddenly turned from her and went off towards the bedroom. How ineffectual was the July sun now! 7. Monday morning is a strenuous but somehow a glad morning in respectable households of regular habits. The clean linen is brought out in lovely white piles from the linen cupboard and distributed over the house, and the dirty linen is collected and shamefully hurried away and catalogued in a place without honour and thrown pell-mell in baskets and dispatched, and then everybody has a sweet sense of relief. In the best bedroom, Elsie waited for Joe to come and help her with the bed. Other beds in the house could be made by two hands, but this one required four, especially on Monday morning. One clean sheet, for in Middleton Square, as in many other localities, only the bottom sheet was cast off, the top sheet taking its inferior position and being supplemented by the clean sheet. One clean sheet, two clean pillow slips, two clean bath towels, two clean face towels, and one clean razor cloth lay on a chair, and Elsie was impatient to see the shiny slips with their rectangular creases geometrically correct on the pillows, and the embroidered edge of the glittering clean sheet turned back and stretching precisely level across the yellow blankets, and the towels hanging in prim, virgin evenness on the towel-stand, and all the room thereby, as it were reborn, newly sanctified to the august uses of the employers. Elsie desired that nothing, not a chance smut, nor an error of half an inch in the adjustment of straight lines, should hurt the susceptible eyes of the employers. She was as eager as the craftsman who is also an artist. She moved to fetch the dreamy Joe, when, instead of Joe, Mrs. Rasty entered the room. Elsie instantly became self-conscious. "'I was just waiting for Joe, madam.' "'And I've been waiting for Miss Ava. I'll help you this morning, Elsie. Miss Ava wanted to see us make the bed, so that she can learn how to make her own. It's her idea. However, we won't wait.' "'No, madam.' The bed-making began. Neither Joe nor Miss Ava appeared. Of Mrs. Rasty, it may be said chiefly that Elsie regarded her as a reasonable being. She had her fads and fancies, but you knew where you were with her. She was about the only woman in Elsie's experience of women who could be regarded as a reasonable being. All the others, though many of them were excellent, loyal, and lovable enough, were moody, nervy, and you could never be sure where they would break out next. According to Elsie, Mrs. Rasty's mental processes were like Elsie's, and like a man's. And Elsie's views of her mistress were shared by everybody, except possibly upon occasion by Dr. Rasty. Mrs. Rasty was a medium woman, not tall nor short, not fat nor thin, not fair nor dark, not smart nor dowdy, not brilliant nor stupid, but sound. She was under forty, and looked neither younger nor older than she was. 
She had a quiet, firm voice with a slight, ineradicable trace of an Essex accent. Among other vestiges of provincialism, she kept a fine and sturdy confidence, generally justified by the event, in her own opinions about things and people. She was extremely interested in people, all people, and never tired of discussing the characters and tendencies of her friends with her friends. She had a sense of order and method, supposed to have been perfected during the time before her marriage, when she was on what may inoffensively be called the begging staff of the London Hospital. She prided herself on being universally considered as reliable. She knew herself to be reliable. She was certainly not a snob, and yet her notions about the ritual of a house were a trifle above her station. She had regretted Joe's disappearance into the kitchen. She would have preferred the manservant to be more in evidence. She was very fond of sweets, and gave sweets freely to Eva, believing that sweets were good for children. But she would say, I don't know whether it's because I like sweets myself, or because I really think they're good for children that I give them to Eva, but I do give them, and I shall keep on giving them to Eva. She received her expert husband's arguments for and against sweets as food for children with bland reserve. "'You're all right, aren't you, Elsie?' she asked, when they were on opposite sides of the wide bed. Her tone was very quiet, very matter-of-fact, very friendly, but not friendly with quite the same equality of friendliness as sharp, stiff Dr. Vast would sometimes use to the servants. In Mrs. Rasty's attitude to the servants, there was always a sober, nice, unobjectionable implication of her superior intelligence— which she could not hide. Nevertheless, she had much respect for Elsie's intelligence, on Elsie's plane. Yes, madam, thank you. A pause. Elsie blushed and wondered, trembling in her heart, what would come next. I was only thinking, Mrs. Rastus seemed to be speaking to herself, I was only thinking um, dinner yesterday. This was the first word uttered by Mrs. Rasty about the breakdown in the dining-room, and indeed, since the breakdown, Elsie had not encountered her mistress, either on the previous evening or on that morning. Had the master said anything to the mistress about Joe's announcement of an intention to leave? Probably. Yet the master had a trick of letting household matters take their course— of separating himself from them as though they absolutely did not concern him or ought not to occupy the mind of one who had more than enough worries of his own elsie said not i feel very sorry for you mrs rasty continued after another pause well ma'am said elsie unfolding a pillow slip and shaking it i, I was that sorry of course waiting at table and, and company and all made me well i don't know where i was and then miss eva her, her crying I, I was that sorry for her oh, I, I was so ashamed i was i hope as you'll look over it i'll take care it don't happen again company or no company i quite understand elsie one thing on top of another "'Yes, I quite understand,' Mrs. Rasty smiled reassuringly. And ten seconds after Elsie had said that she would take care, it didn't happen again. Tears unexpectedly filled her foolish eyes. She, very angry with herself, steadied herself and forced back the tears and a tendency to sob. 
she was humiliated because the situation seemed to have got beyond her this button's just beginning to work loose said mrs rasty discreetly but with no clumsy show of discretion as she handled the other pillow slip nothing about miss ava oh no mrs rasty was not that sort she would accept confidences but never give them she would not even ask whether miss ava had confided in elsie certainly not she would have liked very much to know how much elsie knew if anything but never would she inquire to inquire would have been for her a sign of weakness she would manage as best she could until the information emerged unsought assuredly she would not question miss ava assuredly miss ava would not have told her mother they finished the bed, and precisely at the moment when they were finally smoothing the counterpane, Miss Ava ran eagerly in. The child was wearing her best Sunday white, but with black stockings and shoes. These, and her dark, shining hair and eyes, set off very well the whiteness of the frock, as she had discovered for herself. Not that the frock was immaculately white. In fact, partly owing to climbing offences, it was by no means white enough for another Sunday, and Eva was dirtying it out on a weekday or so. As soon as she saw the state of the bed, she stood quite still, as if transfixed, and her expression changed in an instant from joyous anticipation to the most tragic disillusion and fierce resentment. "'You've not gone and made it!' "'Yes, it's finished. You've come too late. Try to come earlier tomorrow morning, my pet,' Mrs. Rasty spoke with calm, soothing benevolence. "'Oh, but you must undo it, and we'll make it again. You know perfectly well I couldn't come a sec quicker,' Ava brightened somewhat. "'I know nothing of the sort. But you do, mummy. Oh, do let's do it again. You promised me.' She glanced from her mother to Elsie and elsie the tactless fool was so affected by the appeal of miss ava's glance that she made a movement to pull off the counterpane it seemed to elsie that the child's supplication was too touching to be resisted by anybody mrs rasty while looking at eva rebuked elsie by a tiny motion of the hand of course we'll do it again but to-morrow said the wise firm mother and the words were scarcely out of her mouth when she perceived that, though firm, she had not been wise. Ava was on her holidays and at a loose end. She was idle, and Satan lay in wait for her. Her school was a small class held by a semi-retired mistress in Lloyd Square, for some of the more select families with small girls in crowded Clerkenwell were as hard put to it for a school as pioneers in an undeveloped colony, and they had to club together and organize themselves. Hence, Ava had very few available playmates, nor had she a nurse or governess. In holidays, until the seaside was reached, she had to depend for diversion mainly upon her own inventiveness and her mother's companionship. Her inventiveness, in order to be adequate, had to bring about enormous exaggerations. Thus, she had enlarged the affair of tuition and bed-making into something supremely important and infinitely thrilling. Except a tame little tea-party in the afternoon, she had only the bed-making to enliven the immeasurable flat expanse of the day. 
she was now as desperately lorn as if she had lost a fortune a lover salvation itself mrs rasty comprehended all this in a flash but too late what mrs rasty had said she had said she knew that she had failed in a critical moment to see the value of foolish elasticity as opposed to wise firmness if she could have put the clock back by half a minute she would have yielded to the child's ridiculous childishness and wrenched away every bit of linen recklessly off the bed so that eva might begin at the beginning of bed-making but what she said could not be unsaid better the end of the world and the disappearance of the human race than that elsie too comprehended the gravity of the mistress's error and she moved towards the door certainly her duty was to avoid being present at a great and painful scene between two rulers but miss eva violently seized her as she passed and clung to her tremendous arm elsie blushed for the second time eva eva but the child was now transported into a region where the protests of wise firm powerful mothers counted no more than the cheap of a sparrow she was in a rage of disappointment and anger nobody could cast out the devil in her the devil had the whole room eva mrs rasty and elsie helpless in his domination eva stamped her feet tears rushed from her eyes she sobbed neither of the women dared touch her lest worse horrors might ensue lion tamers with magic subduing spells would not have dared to lay hands on her she was spiritually as independent uncontrollable uninfluencible in these minutes as anybody ever was in the history of clerkenwell and yet what was the exhibition in parents language but tantrums you shan't go you shan't go eva screamed shaking and clutching elsie with super girlish strength and turning to her mother i hate you it isn't because of you i won't go to boarding school it's because of elsie i should love to leave you but i'll never leave elsie and i told her so last night then obscurely realizing that by these few words from her lips the devil in her had shattered the home and household and tumbled them in a horrible mess about the heads of all she sank feebly to the floor and elsie ran out of the bedroom as from a disaster eight that same day after what ought to have been but was not the dinner hour elsie stood at the sole window of her home surveying the world the world consisted of iron railings the tops of trees the west front of the handsomest nineteenth-century church in clerkenwell the shins of occasional passers-by and the figure of joe who was working at the front door joe in his green apron and shirt-sleeves was engaged in closing with a broad short steel screw the orifice of the speaking-tube this metal cork immovable by the profane when once it had been screwed down with joe's screwdriver was inserted and made fast for holidays and in unusual circumstances and night disturbers could then only communicate with the saviour of lives through the medium of joe in the basement miss eva considered to be feverish by mrs rosty and with a rash on her sensitive forehead had been put to bed and was lying quietly but here was no cause for sealing the speaking-tube 
the doctor himself was in bed and the blinds and curtains of the best bedroom were drawn and here was the astounding the incredible cause of the sealing of the tube the doctor had arrived a few minutes early for dinner and mrs rasty had at once begun to decline to him the catalogue of urgencies which had accumulated in his absence he had said to her interrupting look here milly i, I think i shall go to bed for a day or two if i don't i may have a breakdown then one of his nervous laughs but more nervous than usual mrs rasty had instantly taken him by the arm and walked him upstairs and put him to bed and fed him as if he might have been eva mrs rasty very well comprehended the immense significance of her husband's simple statement she said i'll see to everything don't worry he said i won't neither did mrs rasty worry over much she knew that she could trust both his sagacity and her own she rather enjoyed an ordeal as a skilled and strong swimmer enjoys a rough sea she gave the order to joe to ensure quietude for the night she instructed elsie about answering the front door she telephoned to hospitals police registrars of births and death to dr warple the doctor's substitute and to the hostess of the tea-party which eva would not be able to attend eva contrary to her own prophecies had fallen asleep emotionally exhausted the thrilling news about the doctor had not been vouchsafed to her nor was the doctor told about eva elsie stood at her window because the life of the house was arrested and there seemed to be nothing for her to do that she was capable then of doing she might have attacked the arrears of her own private mending and would have done so had she been perfect but perfection was not hers she wanted to think and did think and thinking made her hungry and as she had had very little dinner she went into the kitchen and ate a whole dishful of cold potatoes wreckage of the neglected dining-room dinner she was almost desperately desirous to go and see miss eva to what end she knew not but she dare not go for mrs rasty was entrenched on the first floor and none might invade it without an invitation by bell not that she desired to talk to miss eva no merely to be with the child nothing could usefully be said to anyone miss eva with a couple of sentences had created a terrible situation it was surprising to elsie how talking about things could render them intolerable the facts had not altered since the previous night but miss eva in her passion had stated them in the joint presence of her mother and elsie and so had given them a frightful and sinister new power which paralyzed everybody what could mrs rasty say to elsie nothing without self-humiliation what could elsie say to mrs rasty nothing unless mrs rasty began and even then the real mistress of the dread business lay obstinate in miss eva's bed theoretically the child was at the mercy of her parents but in practice they were at her mercy mrs rasty could not bind miss eva and carry her screaming to a distant school she could only persuade miss eva and how could she the mother say to miss eva my pet it is wrong for you to care for elsie more than me do be reasonable and do consent to leave elsie when the time comes and go to school like other little girls besides you're a big girl now 
nor could mrs rasty say to elsie elsie can't you do anything with my daughter of course eva was spoilt yet was she spoilt mrs rasty never spoilt her elsie rarely spoilt her elsie was the mother's loyal lieutenant of course miss eva was naughty but elsie could not think of her as naughty she could only think of her as in need of sympathy pity solace she could only think of her as poor little thing the wicked girl was so lovable she reigned in elsie's heart nobody could be blamed and yet there was tragedy joe came down into the basement with his screwdriver and to joe also elsie could breathe no word she dared not even let him know in the stillness of the strange afternoon that she knew of what he had said to the doctor about leaving joe was very gravely upset by the doctor's indisposition it had shaken the roots of his existence his restless features gave indication of secret turmoil and elsie might not add dangerously to that turmoil by telling either about the scene of the morning between mother and daughter she passed from her home into the kitchen joe sat by the table there tapping the empty potato dish with the screwdriver where's all them potatoes he asked gloomily elsie gave him a little guilty smile i'm going on with my windows said he expression of his feeling that if he was to keep sane he must work violently elsie without any premeditation or any foreknowledge of what she was about to do sat down on his thin knee with all her massive weight and put her arms around his neck and kissed him and pressed her cheek long against his and kissed him again and again she was comforting him and herself too she was protecting him from the world and from himself she was telling him the most important thing in the world that the lamp of her love was burning undimmed amid calamities yes old lad she muttered go and get on with your windows she kept him near her or herself near him throughout the remainder of the long hot day she even arranged her bits of work so that now and then she could almost formally visit and talk to him silly pleasant nothings while he made his panes of glass flash and glint like crystal and she took his place in the kitchen for the preparation of such trifles as tea and slops for invalids no supper was served upstairs mrs rasty's appetite had seemingly been subdued to that of her patients proof that any appearances to the contrary notwithstanding mrs rasty was a woman dr warple came to attend to the panelites and having dispatched them more quickly than dr rasty ever dispatched them he departed again the last caller called the last delivery of letters slithered on the hall floor joe went out with mrs rasty's last replies to the pillar box elsie answered the last telephone call jack was lodged in the kitchen bulletins were favorable the doctor had a long sleep miss eva's temperature had dropped to normal and the rash was vanishing from her forehead elsie and joe retired definitely into their home she had continuously kept her hold on him his features were steadier he was silently grateful for her moral help they had become most movingly intimate and yet even they were separated by deceptions and reserves joe had not confessed to her that he had spoken to the doctor about leaving he was ashamed of that little episode and went in fear of its possible consequences 
and she had not told joe that she knew nor had she given any hint of the nature of the scene which had ended in miss ava's collapse they got into bed darkness silence save for st mark's clock elsie went to sleep with her hand on his it seemed to her that she had scarcely laid her head on the pillow before joe was violently shaking her her body protested in vain against the summons back into wakefulness the room was lighted joe stood by the bed in his nightshirt the door was ajar mrs wants you upstairs said joe mrs wants ye mrs wants ye mrs all right all right conscience had resumed its sway over her she sprang up the clock said twenty-five minutes past two issuing from her home elsie saw that all the stair lights were burning they beckoned her upwards alarmingly she heard jack nosing anxiously against the kitchen door mrs rasty clad in a resplendent chinese dressing-gown a present from herself to her husband stood on the first-floor landing and calmly awaited the summarily clothed elsie ascending towards her is master worse mem asked elsie whispering and still knotting her apron-strings behind she had omitted the cap oh no said mrs rasty with rough reassurance he's in a beautiful sleep but miss ava's very restless she wants you to go and sit with her the dignified and masterful creature grew self-conscious as she spoke these significant words and elsie sympathized with her in her defeat and grew self-conscious too indeed elsie somehow had the sensations of a criminal before a judge oh yes ma'am you're sure you won't mind oh no ma'am i'll sit as long as she likes thank you elsie mrs rasty was still barring the way you know she's not in the least ill but of course she's had a very trying day she'll be all right to-morrow and if mr rasty has a good night i think i shall take them both away to-morrow or the day after to eastbourne that's really all mr rasty needs yes ma'am elsie agreed deferentially and then she added strangely astonishingly because she felt that now or never was the moment and perhaps when you come back joe and me had better leave she did not reflect that she was thus casting herself and joe out into the world again she knew only that it was her duty to say what she said then you want to make it still more difficult for me do you want to kill my eva my eva what yielding familiarity to the servant mrs rasty's emotion caused her to speak almost raspingly with a scowl oh no ma'am oh no ma'am i'm sure elsie was deeply ashamed when she reached miss ava's room the child had dropped asleep under the electric glare the picture of the delicate child was infinitely affecting elsie's eyes were suddenly wet she extinguished the light and sat down nine august and a dry hot august hardly a month had passed since dr rasty with that quiet mysterious wise instinct for self-preservation which characterized him in grave junctures had taken to his bed but great things had happened causing great waves on the flat sea of clerkenwellian life and the sea was flat again mrs rasty had taken her family to the seaside not however to eastbourne to littlehampton 
Miss Ava would not go to Eastbourne. She connected Eastbourne with the school. Useless to tell her that the school was closed and the headmistress away in Switzerland. Eastbourne was a name of dread to her, certainly not a subject of reasonable argument. She would not go. She would not have her bath, nor dress, nor eat, without a promise that Eastbourne would be wiped off the map. It was astonishing how effectively a supposedly helpless child could defy and defeat a handful of adults. Mrs. Rasty yielded out of regard for her husband's nerves, and she had to smile, too, from the same motive. Never was a proud, sagacious, and self-reliant mother more cruelly deceived in a beloved, perfectly brought-up daughter, and this was perhaps nothing compared with the unheaving event of the doctor's flight from Clerkenwell, which many persons considered to be the equivalent of a death sentence on themselves. Dr. Rasty went to Littlehampton for a fortnight, but had to remain there for a month. At the end of the fortnight he had prudently ordered himself another fortnight, and for four weeks Elsie had the job of preventing friction between substitute and patients and police and government functionaries. In the course of the struggle, a number of people did die, were buried, and were proved not to have been indispensable. A terrific day when the doctor, with face tanned like a chauffeur's, returned to Clerkenwell and resumed his work calm, prim, impassable as ever. Within six hours you could not have guessed from his demeanour that he had been a day absent from his post. Elsie was thinner and paler. In addition to superintending the practice, she had, with Joe's help, cleaned the house down. Then it became known that Dr. Rasty had engaged an assistant in the person of Dr. Adam's son, on the east side of the square. This act was approved by the square, which perceived high politics in it. Old Adam was a character who had decreed that his newly qualified son must gain experience with another than his father. Old Adam would never join forces with anybody, but the shrewd foresaw that when he should retire, his agreeable and promising son would coalesce with Dr. Rasty, and the biggest medical firm in Clerkenwell would come into being. Yes, great events happening, and to happen, exemplifying the progress of the world. Elsie and Joe saw the affair chiefly in the light of the fact that young Mr. Adam was to take dinner, but young Mr. Adam called it lunch, and tea in the house. The new arrangement started on the second day. Every day seemed to bring new excitements. The arrival of the Rastes from Littlehampton coincided with the arrival of the landlord, Mr. Batwing, in the garden and the upper stories of the house. The illustrious painter was entirely unexpected. Almost at once, music issued from the upper open windows and entered the dwelling of the Rastes by the lower open windows, producing a queer change of mood. On the next day, the delivery of a marquee and chairs and trestles and planks and the mowing of the desiccated lawn announced that Mr. Batwing meant to give a garden party. Then one of his servants had an accident on the spiral staircase, and Dr. Rasty was summoned. On the third day, the festooning of the garden with lamps and Chinese lanterns indicated that the party was to be an evening party and to occur on that very evening. 
and in the afternoon came an autograph invitation for Dr. and Mrs. Rasty, which Mrs. Rasty said that nobody could persuade, and no consideration induce her to refuse. Here the excitement should surely have culminated, but it was raised still higher by the lighting of the garden, the breaking forth of an alfresco orchestra, and the steady flow of motor-cars and taxis from China and Peru into Cheval Street. Never had Middleton Square witnessed the like. The exit of Dr. and Mrs. Rasty in full panoply through the Rasty back door, and so into the garden by the adjacent bat-wing door, took place at ten o'clock. Elsie and Miss Ava watched the scene from the open window of Miss Ava's bedroom. According to law and custom, the child ought to have been asleep, but who could expect a child to sleep with fairyland and loud music and the innumerable explosions of petrol just beyond her window? The fact was, Miss Ava had rung for Elsie, who was glad enough to help her to watch. The garden was full of strange figures, some of them engaged in heathen dances and savage rites. The appearance of a few of the women shocked Elsie, but Miss Ava saw nothing to which she could take objection. Mr. Batwing, tall, thin, and elegant, dominated the spectacle in a huge-brimmed black Spanish hat. With what a complicated curve of a Spanish flourish he uncovered when Mr. Rasty led forward Mrs. Rasty, the doctor and his wife were like visitants from another world. "'My tenant,' called Mr. Batwing, with recondite humour to the nearest revellers, pointing to Dr. Rasty. "'My landlord,' retorted Dr. Rasty briskly, in exactly the same faintly sardonic tone as he always used for those two important words. There was laughter in the garden. Miss Ava laughed, too, quite wildly.' but Elsie could not perceive any cause for laughter. Within a few minutes Mrs. Rasty was dancing under the rim of the Spanish hat, and Miss Ava, at the sight, slept in ecstasy. She seemed to draw to herself the glory of the garden party and make it her own. She would have liked her parents to look up at the window, but neither of them did so. The dark window with its occupants, spies they were, attracted not a glance from anybody at all. "'I must go and have my supper. I haven't had my supper,' said Elsie. She felt an obscure, uncomfortable disapproval of the show. "'And you must go back to bed, Miss Ava.' "'Oh, don't be such a silly old long face. You know I couldn't sleep. No one could expect me to sleep. I'm sure Mummy wouldn't, and I'm most fearfully hungry, too. Oh, Elsie, do let me come and have supper with you and Joe. Do!' "'Anyhow, I shall, and if you won't let me, I'll just call out loud to mother and ask her.' What a horrible threat! The child was impish, devilish. Elsie's brain could not work quickly enough to cope with her knavery. Joe was in the home, not in the kitchen. He had had his supper, and in trousers and shirt and spectacles, was studying his majestic textbook. "'Oh, do let's go and sit with Joe,' Miss Ava suggested. "'Let's carry the food in there.' Thus she introduced herself into the home. And there were changes even in the home. Elsie had not replaced on the walls the medals of her first husband, thrown down by Joe in his fury. She had hidden them in a drawer. "'Where's Jack?' Miss Ava asked, and answered at once. "'I shouldn't be surprised if he's at the party.' She was glorious with the borrowed glory of the garden party. In her very immature breast, the party had lighted a fire which whole decades would not extinguish. 
she sat down in excitement and coquettishly smoothed out her peignoir and shook her freed hair her cheek was exquisitely flushed her dark eyes sparkled her little feverish movements gave the illusion that she was dancing as she sat on the chair she had come into the home partly in order to practice her arts on joe there being nobody else handy for her young experiments but joe ignored her he sat stolidly in the large wicker chair and read his book muttering the words thereof he did not even pass a remark upon miss ava's being out of bed at such an hour nor inquire about the party which from the home was as inaudible as invisible the low encumbered room had accumulated all the heat of the day languor enough to have lulled any one but miss ava joe don't you want me to be here she pouted with consciously exerted charm elsie made a sign with her mouth that the master of the home ought not to be disturbed elsie i wonder why i'm so fond of you elsie also had often meditated in vain upon this mystery of passionate affection for she could discover no attractiveness in herself save for joe and one or two younger men as for miss ava the high-bred so clever so disdainfully critical what could she see in the dull slow heavy ex-charwoman the thing admitted of no explanation do you know said miss ava triumphantly mummy and dad have never said another word to me about that school elsie kept on eating thick bread and butter miss ava was delicately consuming a banana do you know elsie she began once more i couldn't live without you you could live without her fast enough and you aren't so fond of her as you think for you would be turning her and me out of the house it's all vanity and stiff-neck and i've told you miss ava these shattering phrases came startlingly forth into the room in the deep and solemn voice of joe but joe didn't glance up from his book oh joe n now from elsie miss ava was stricken her jaw dropped as though sustaining ligaments had been cut ah, i don't know what you, you mean she weakly stammered joe looked at her ominously over his spectacles what business have you to like elsie more than your mammy and go preaching about it too how can we stay in the same place as missus after that can you tell me one way or another you'll have to live without elsie miss ava and soon too you won't do this and you won't do that and what's going to happen to us yes this astounding utterance from so unexpected a quarter was the first pronouncement of any sort from anybody upon the school question for over a month it fell among the women like a meteorite it stripped miss ava's glory from her and left her naked in shame and enlightenment she burst into tears and vanished from the room leaving the third part of a banana behind yes said joe clinching the matter oh joe dear elsie meekly protested as she rose to follow and succor miss ava and sit down joe commanded shouting sit down or i'll break every stick in this blasted home ten climatically it was a quite ordinary september day when miss ava like a lamb went off to boarding school but otherwise the day was one of the most significant days that ever dawned on middleton square the event had tremendous importance in the household 
On the day before, everyone was saying in his heart, "'Tomorrow she goes away to school. What will the house be without her?' And on the day itself, everyone was saying, "'Today she goes away, and this afternoon she'll be gone.' And Miss Ava walked up and down stairs, intensely, happily, miserably aware that everything that was thought of and done was thought of and done with reference to herself. Even Jack seemed to know, and probably did know, that a very great matter was afoot, and that, mysteriously and wrongfully, he was suffering in social prestige. Mrs. Rasty was to conduct her defeated and passive daughter to Eastbourne by the fast one-twenty from Victoria. Dr. Rasty could not go, and he would have to dine alone, but he was spectacularly and touchingly affectionate before setting off on his morning rounds, and young Mr. Adam went so far as to give Miss Ava a beautiful grown-up pocket-book. All was in train, all was ready, for all had been arranged by Mrs. Rasty, but you never know what may happen." Five minutes before the taxi was due, Mrs. Rasty ran down into the kitchen with a disconcerted and ireful face and said to Elsie, "'Elsie, Miss Ava would like you to come with us and see her off at the station.' Evidently there had been an altercation between mother and daughter, and the mother had been forced to surrender by one of Miss Ava's ultimatums. "'Just slip your cloak on,' added Mrs. Rasty to Elsie. "'I'll be as quick as I can, madam,' Elsie answered submissively." But Elsie had no intention of going to Victoria in her working clothes, half hidden by a cloak. Elsie had her notions of what was decent and dignified. She regretted not to be able to oblige the mistress, but positively she could not go as she was. She did not announce this decision to Mrs. Rasty. She merely disappeared into the home. The taxi arrived and blew its horn. Miss Ava's luggage was piled on it. Joe rushed down to hasten Elsie. "'Yes, uh, yes, I'm coming,' said Elsie. Mrs. Rasty stood at the top of the basement and called with restrained impatience and resentment. "'Elsie, Elsie, what on earth are you doing? Do you want us to miss the train?' "'Coming, madam, I'm coming.' The suspense was dreadful. The action of the heart of the household seemed to be arrested. Elsie heard the voice of Miss Ava on the front step, saying, "'Mummy, it's no use. We must wait for her.' At length, Elsie, red and breathless, ran up into the hall. She was dressed in her best black, for her late mother, with a black hat and the funereal black gloves, and she carried a purse and an umbrella. "'But what about serving the dinner, ma'am?' she gasped. "'Oh, dear Elsie, do for heaven's sake come along, as if I hadn't told Joe about the gentleman's dinner.' In the taxi, Elsie sat with her back to the driver, facing the two rulers. She was horribly, very painfully, self-conscious. Self-consciousness drove every other emotion out of her heart. She did not know where to look. She dared not look at the faces of the rulers, but without doing so, she well knew that they, too, were constrained. Nobody spoke, except once when Mrs. Rasty said with a sarcastic sigh, "'I wonder whether he—the driver— calls this the shortest way to Victoria. Elsie had never travelled so far afield. In the great new reverberating terminus, with its crowds, shops, and strange contrivances of all kinds, she ought to have been enchanted and impressed. For though she had indeed seen the facades of King's Cross, St. Pancras, and Euston Termini, she had never till that morning been inside 
any railway station nor had she ever beheld a train save for an occasional glimpse of an underground train on the exposed part of the underground line south of rosebury avenue as for travelling in a train wild dream but she was not enchanted and she was not impressed she was not but self-conscious when mrs rasty was busy with ticket-getting and the minute instructions of a porter miss ava took elsie's hand furtively i shan't cry said miss ava and perhaps i'd better not kiss you not there i'll kiss you now and she kissed elsie in the midst of the hurrying crowds on the vast glass-roofed expanse of forecourt nobody took any notice of the act a terminus is the theatre of multifarious shameless and shamed kisses here take your platform ticket said mrs rasty as they passed through the wicket you'll want it when you leave and Elsie clutched the magic card in her gloved hand. There stood the important train with Eastbourne imprinted on its brows, sinister proof that Eastbourne and schools existed. Never before had Elsie seen so many fashionable people congregated together. She had always thought that fashionable people were few and scattered, quite exceptional persons, yet here nearly everybody but Elsie was fashionable gradually she noticed that there were many schoolgirls in the moving throng they were everywhere most of them were accompanied but a few grand awe-inspiring porter-tipping heroines to frightened miss ava were alone and free elsie heard a puffing middle-aged gentleman say that if he had known he would have chosen another day the train was crowded but mrs rasty had secured two corner seats by her foreseeing organization not conceiving that there might be more than one school at eastbourne elsie concluded that miss ava's school must be a very mighty thing indeed when mother and daughter were seated in the full compartment and the luggage bestowed and the porter tipped and the door closed and the window of it dropped mrs rasty regained all her usual equanimity she talked rather stiffly but she talked and not unkindly miss ava pale and struggling to command herself as she munched a comforting chocolate did not talk nor did elsie standing at the window every clock in the station stood still you looked at them looked deliberately away for an age and looked again but not a finger had budged it was most extraordinary then a strange vibration was it could it be that the train had begun to move the train did move crawling good-bye elsie good-bye miss ava oh and elsie be sure you don't forget to strip miss ava's bed mrs rasty smiled and nodded very benevolently showing that elsie was the respected and valued servant after all miss ava sprang into the window tears were in her eyes as she smiled and waved lots of people were waving but for elsie miss ava's waving was like no other the ticket inspector stopped her at the barrier oh my ticket she gave it to him thanking god that she had not lost it she was reflecting poor little thing she'll be very very unhappy at first and what the house'll be like without her i daren't think she was scared at the prospect of the house without miss ava scared she could not contemplate the sorrow that would be her own till christmas she had entered the station in a dream and as a follower she had no idea where she was in the terminus or where victoria was in london and in relation to clerkenwell 
but she got into the street at last somewhat dazed and walked a little way and was still more lost she was somehow ashamed to consult a policeman suddenly she saw a magic number on a motor bus thirty-eight and by heaven's grace the bus stopped on the opposite side of the road and she ran over to it and boarded it that number was a chipped-off bit of clerkenwell for her she knew as surely as anybody could know anything that the thirty-eights went up rosemary avenue but because she was in a strange land she doubted does this go to rosemary avenue she asked the conductor the conductor said that it did elsie sat comfortably down in a corner to indulge her grief she soon began to feel hungry end of story one part two